Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in, or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast. Over and out. All right. Thanks so much for sitting down with me, friends. Hmm. How are you folks doing today? Very well. <laughs> how do you? How does this feel? About five, five seconds in, would you say this is uh, better or worse than the live stream? In terms of feel, in terms of yeah, I think it's a little better. I think it's it's more um, cozy. Cozier. So, so then you understand what I meant when I, before about how it's just yeah, it's a little more peaceful, mm. a, little, a little more. You feel less rushed. I think I feel more more situated. That's in, right. In in physical space. That's right. Yeah. So, we don't really need many niceties or warm-ups. We've been talking a lot the past few days, and we've already done a live stream, which is much more difficult than this. So I think without any preliminaries, we just jump in to some big questions. Does that sound good to you? Yeah, absolutely. The first question that would come to my mind, and we were kind of chatting about this before we started, can the left still be saved. A lot of people look at the left today and it seems just overrun with idiocy. And a lot of people are increasingly of the belief that it's hopeless, that the left as we know it is so overrun with just basic kind of stupidity and hysteria that it's no longer even worthwhile to identify with the left if, if you lean that way. Um, and that it, you know, people should basically flee from the left if they care at all about honesty or truth or any kind of, ser- you know, serious political project. I mean, that's increasingly popular a viewpoint, even for people who are sympathetic to the left. That's not even talking about the people who are obviously hostile to the left, who, who find it increasingly a kind of, uh, stupid and, 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 and violent force. So I think we all here probably have some different takes on this. So I think it'd be a rich, jumping off point. Do either of you want to kick off? Yeah, I think I'll start actually by first of all pointing out that there are many people who increasingly dispute the possibility of even conceiving the world in terms of left and right, and I think it's actually necessary to continue to do so. I think that it's important to understand what is meant by the left and the right. Also, of course, people have different definitions of what these terms mean. Uh, I'm going to defend or rather attack um, the idea that the left can be saved. I think the left, in a sense, can't be saved. But then again, also the question of salvation is not really the question. I also think that actually leftists, maybe people who, who identify with the left in terms of, you know, their own identity, you know, the question of what they're actually identifying with, whether that is what the left really is, whether it's possible to identify in a specific form what the left is or, or could be, I think that that's both possible and necessary. And I think that um, to think a little bit about what 
our friend Mark Fisher described as the vampire castleist, very controversial essay that he wrote and his own commitments to leftism and whether he was himself, in fact, able to, to escape from the vampire castle and whether the exit is actually, I think, on the right. I think it's necessary to go through the right. And I think that what that means in different ways is, first of all, it's important for leftists to be able to actually understand the arguments of the right, because many of them simply do not, which is also why they find the right so terrifying, and it's also why their conceptual vocabulary is so limited, and why they're unable, in fact, to distinguish between people articulating extremely conservative, mainstream conservative views, and Nazism, simply because they lack the technical or conceptual vocabulary to even understand why the right takes the positions that it does. Mm. And second of all, I think ultimately what the right means to me, to the extent that it means anything, is it means what Confucius talks about in the, the rectification of names. I mean, I think this, this word itself, you know, wrecked, um, you know, it's, based on on also the Proto-Indo-European rig, um, royal, uh, rule, uh, all of these different terms are associated with with um, the word right. And mm. it's a question of a certain kind of relationship to reality, the possibility of a relationship, for example, to natural right, which is an idea that actually doesn't relate to to, to zoology as we understand it, but in fact relates instead to some kind of logical set of principles concerning how one has to be in the world to be in a logically coherent place. I think this, this right versus a left that in a sense is, is devoted to overturning that. And maybe there's a necessity for it to do so, a kind of metaphysical necessity, but there's also a way in which one has to analyze things empirically and to understand what it means today to consider the actual political force of the left, people who identify as leftists, who use leftist language, who derive their power in a way from, from a leftist discourse, you know, what that kind of power block amounts to in terms of its, its internal dynamics and its mimetic structure, um, where it's pointing and whether there's a sort of imbalance actually that has to i think be be restored and i think i think it does hmm and this is coming from someone who has not always been on the right is that absolutely correct? not i was a i was a um i was a self-identified you know far leftist communist for many years so in in a way i understand these people and i understand how they think because i also understand to some degree, how how I thought, and mm-hmm. you know, I thought in a way that was, I would say, less clear then in terms of also my own psychological investments in certain kinds of realities and the way that they appeared to me. There's a way in which it's extremely important, perhaps the most important thing, to be able to separate oneself from the subject that one is discussing or attempting to perceive, and that's something that comes with a certain kind of discipline, uh, intellectual discipline. Uh, I think that 
the people today, maybe they're more visible today also because of the way in which communication structures have changed, who are less able to do that. And the question of identity politics actually really relates to that because it's to do also with how people are manifesting, you know, individual desires in the form of politicized, you know, collectivized language and, and the way in which what one wants for oneself in one's life and what one wants for society and how one's image of society becomes entangled in a certain kind of self-perception of oneself as the person that's wanting it. I think it's something that we're seeing playing out on a very big scale now. Mm. We are seeing that play out. You're right. And, and so that's one case that one could make. And I think a lot of people do feel in a way that's similar to, to the case that you made, DC. But I think, Nina, you have a different view is that fair to say you're not so convinced that a right word shift is the appropriate response to the craziness on the left? I think one thing that perhaps we have in common and that maybe is a good uh, meeting point between the so-called right and the left, and I agree with DC that um, this way of articulating politics, which you know comes from the French Revolution in a certain way, or like you know the idea of two sides is not particularly useful anymore uh, in many ways mm-hmm. um, and certainly I agree that the contemporary so-called left um, you know is is uh, in the grip of uh, various forms of authoritarianism and policing and I would say maybe what unites us is a antipathy and indeed deep uh, desire to eliminate the state um, whether that be the sort of state um, that uh, involves policing um but also the kind of state as it is internalized in people's behavior, which is to say when people become authoritarian um, in themselves and start saying what can and can't be said, who you can't see and so on. So I think there's an anti-authoritarianism that perhaps we could meet on this question and whether that's a question of a certain kind of anarchism or a certain kind of uh, Christian anarchism even or maybe a relationship between a left anarchism and a right anarchism. Um, I, again, this is very complicated because of groups like Antifa, you know, and uh, groups that describe themselves as anarchist, um, but themselves often perform a policing role. And I mean, I would like to say that um, there are many people on the left, genuinely on the left, who, who I respect and admire, people who have spent their lives trying to kind of give a materialist analysis of uh, the iniquities of capitalism. You know, I remain an anti-capitalist, whatever that means today. And, you know, I'm extremely critical of of consumer culture, of of a kind of culture that involves um, exploitation. What I'm interested in is free time in a certain way. I think communism is free time. I'm interested in thinking, rethinking about what a a pre-post-industrial situation might be, such that people have a relation to the land, to have a relation to freedom, to carnival, to to enjoyment, actually, with each other, and whether that's a leftist project or not. I mean, I'd say there's a libertarian dimension to this, which is about um, freedom. And, and again, most of the people I know on the, on the left are, are, are similarly interested in freedom. They want to be freed from the shackles of capitalist exploitation, from, you know, the, the state as this authoritarian kind of uh, police uh, force, you know, police in the broadest possible sense, you know, anyone who tells you what you can and can't do. Um, so I think, and at the same time, I think, 
it may be that the terms we're using left and right are no longer really appropriate. I mean, may, maybe we could have a conversation about what, what, what the word freedom means, for example, which is a, you know, an incredibly powerful word, but obviously is used in, you know, extremely different ways. Mm. And I suppose the left I'm interested in is a, a left that, that would celebrate freedom. I think actually I'm, I'm not willing to surrender the terms left and right. I think it's somehow important to, to be able to understand them. I think there is an organized and a mobilized left. It defines itself as left. It identifies as left. It, it articulates itself through the language of the left. It's connected to institutions that are similarly articulated. And there's a necessity actually in the first stage to, to understand that. In fact, there's less of a movement. Uh, on the right, which is so defined. I think um, people I know who are, you know, broadly on the right or have been placed there are people who don't necessarily think in terms of what it would mean to, for example, have a position as a rightist, whereas that is indeed what leftists do. I mean, leftists are searching mm. sort of always in a way for what is the left, what is the leftist position on something. And the mm. fact that it's actually very difficult to clearly articulate is also something to do with the power of the left, to do with a kind of incertitude and an anxiety, actually, which is generated by that lack of certainty. You're talking about anti-authoritarianism. I think the question of authority is an important one. Ultimately, the question is who has authority or, or what has authority. Um, I think it's difficult to dispense with authority altogether. There has to be some kind of hierarchy in the last instance of principles. For example, one must be able to say, for example, that Aristotle is not on the same level as, you know, J.K. Rowling. Like there is, for example, <laughs> thoughts that are more subtle and powerful than other thoughts. And, you know, one has to be able to see that with respect to one's own life. One has to be able to see one's own behaviors actually in those terms. One needs to be, in a sense, within a kind of structure that is itself pointing in a certain direction um, towards, I would say, you know, more strength, towards more balance, towards more clarity, towards, towards, for example, you know, wisdom and, and, and things of this nature. Now, the question would be from the political point of view, first of all, actually, like, how do you get out of the political point of view? And you need to be able to understand it clearly in order to do so. And I think you can't get rid of the left from your analysis uh, without understanding it first. And if you if you if you don't fully understand it, then you become actually or you remain a leftist in certain important ways. And yeah, the the goal is I I do think somehow to exit you know also according to this very principle political modes of understanding in order to acquire subtler modes of understanding question is how to do that right i know i mean i don't disagree on some of that in the sense that philosophy precisely allows you to ask these questions i mean if you think about the figure of socrates you know he is a a, a, a you know an absolute annoyance to the state i mean he is a, he is a figure that causes great disruption in in politics, you know, he he kind of turns young men away from the things they're supposed to like, you know, want like status, power, political, the use of political rhetoric, you know. And so, I mean, those deeper questions, 
you know, I don't think belong to to anything uh, political I, in that sense. There is an extra political, which is absolutely more important. And, you know, that's perhaps questions of philosophy, questions of theology, um, which don't necessarily um, map on, uh, nor should they, in fact, to to these kind of more territorial disputes about how we govern and how we live um, together. And, and these are kind of, I mean, one one word perhaps that that you know we we mentioned freedom but might also be justice you know does justice where does justice reside in in terms of politics you know like is is this a, a concept that belongs let's say to the left or to the right i mean this is a very very profoundly important concept for for plato for philosophy you know justice is in a sense uh you know it's it's also a very strong religious term it's a kind of absolutely constitutive human um, way of being and relating. You know, we feel injustice. We feel when something is is not uh, imbalanced, to use your your language. And uh, and it may be that this is is nothing to do with uh, left and right. And it may be on on these ter- terms in this territory that we can actually have a discussion that then becomes one of, of about politics if we if we take out the concepts, the concepts that mean the most to us, perhaps. Say. I mean, I think, in fact, the term justice definitely belongs to the right. I mean, if you even look at, you know, in, in European languages, Recht is, 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 is justice, basically, in, in, in German. And again, it's a question of trying to exit from the political. Justice is not a political concept. And it's the left that politicizes justice, for example, by reconceiving it as social justice. And I think that's an important distinction. The commitment of the left to ideology, in fact, keeps one within a certain kind of political frame of mind. Now, mm. to get out of the political, you need to get out of ideology, actually. You need to be able to start to think of things precisely as you say, in their extra in their extra political, extra ideological, you know, philosophical, metaphysical even dimensions. That requires exiting the left. Now to be fair I, I suspect you would agree with this, that the the mainstream right or kind of the vulgar right is mostly just as bad as the as the left, right? Well, I don't know who that right is, actually. I mean, to be honest, I don't have any relation particularly with it. I mean, there are parties, I suppose, that do define themselves as, as being right-wing parties. Um, I mean, because I always say basically that I, w- I will take a smart and honest right-winger even a radical right winger over a kind of typical radical leftist any day of the week. But I wouldn't take a kind of typical right winger over a typical leftist necessarily any day of the week. I mean, my, my take on it is kind of that the left and the people who strongly identify with the left or the right in general are uh, typically in one way or another overtaken by a type of ideology that that possesses them in some sense and that has its own uh kinds of problems whether you're on the left or the right but on the left and the right there are pockets of 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 truth seeking of 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 radical honesty or or at least a kind of search for some kind of truth beneath the ideology that perhaps you know happens to kind of condition a particular person's life or perspective and i feel like there's more ground to be shared there's more interesting things to be created there's more things to figure out there are more things to create between kind of radically honest truth-seeking left leaners and radically honest truth-seeking 
right leaners. But on the left and the right, that's going to be a very small minority in any event. I think, in fact, thinking about it more, the the political form of the right essentially is composed of everybody who opposes the left. This is this is what the right means in politics, and you can see how schizophrenic actually the the right is when you look at you know in America, for example. I mean, you have evangelical Christians, you have at the same time you know right wing libertarians, you have you know also neocons all in a coalition together. You know, the reality is they don't share common values. What they share is an antipathy to the organized left, which is organized, I think, more coherently ideologically than than the right is. And so, you know, it's a question then analytically, as you know, we we look at the political field from, I suppose, like as much distance as we're able to get from it, you know, how one conceives of these these forces in play, you know, in any given moment here Mm. or elsewhere. Now, you know, leftists and rightists, I say, um, I think they are, they both are compromised to some extent in their analysis. I mean, it's interesting to understand that how the left fears that it's losing to the right, also the right fears that it's losing to the left. Mm-hmm. It's hard to have a clear view of that. Um, my view is I think the left is in power actually right now. I think that it's in power and you can sense its power in terms of what has become normalized very quickly Mm. in political discourse that 10 years ago, 20 years ago would have been almost inconceivable. And this is the left conceived as a kind of agent of progress you know, always pushing progress forward, social progress forward, some kind of ideology forward. And I think as the world becomes more ideological, the left becomes more powerful. And, and as it becomes less ideological, the left loses power. And so therefore, the project, in a sense, to to liquidate ideology is actually a project to, to liquidate the left. Hmm. I have a take on that, actually. What's interesting about that kind of schizophrenic view that we have today where the left thinks that the right is taking over and the right thinks the left is taking over, it's it's partially true in both ways, but in different dimensions. I think what's happening, and I'm pretty sure the data bears this out quite convincingly, is that over the past several decades, economic conservatism has been winning objectively just because capitalism has intensified. So if you look at all of the Western liberal democracies, let's say, uh, in the 60s and 70s and compare them to today, far more kind of social safety nets were in place, far more redistribution was in place in general. There was certainly more radical and vigorous kind of grassroots, you know, democratic left wing energy in the 60s and 70s. Basically, capitalism has intensified and it has significantly decimated a lot of the kind of left wing uh, economic redistributive kind of liberal policies. So in that, in that dimension, economic conservatism has been increasingly taking over objectively. But then in the social dimension, social liberalism at the same time, over the same time period has been taking over. So I think what's happening and that, of course, the obvious data points on that are obvious, you know, increasing acceptance of homosexuality, alternative sexualities, queer genders, all of these sorts of things are, uh, you know, obviously increasing. Uh, significantly over the past several decades. 
So I think what happens is the left looks to kind of the increasing intensification of capitalism and says, you know, look, this is obvious that the neoliberal, you know, conspiracy has been successful and, you know, the rich and right and the right wing are increasingly taking over our lives and destroying, you know, our, our, our possibilities of existence. And they're right because they're looking at economic phenomena. And then the right is looking at, you know, the increasing normalization of all kinds of uh, socially liberal ideas and practices. And they feel like everything's being taken over by, by the lefties. But so it's kind of true on both sides, but it's only looking at, at, at part of the story. So that, that's, that's what I think is the, the empirical story there. I think that's a very questionable story, to be honest. I think that the notion that the West has become more economically conservative is, is extremely questionable. It's a narrative that's mm. been, uh, widely promoted. Uh, you know, the concept of neoliberalism, of course, which is a concept actually that comes out of Marxist theory, neo-Marxist theory, in order to describe the theories of, of Milton Friedman and, and Hayek to some extent. You know, they didn't, in fact, describe their own mm-hmm. thought as this way. Whether their thought was actually implemented is, is I think, a really significant question. From my point of view, it seems that, of course, I mean, I'm not an economist, to be honest, and so I'm not somebody who's able to speak about this with um, truly granular levels of detail, but I think what you have certainly seen, and this actually is something that goes directly against the kinds of economics proposed by Hayek and Friedman, is an enlargement of the state, an increasing entanglement of the state in uh, in the economy, which is no longer capitalism, actually. It's something else. It's a kind of corporatism. You could even say it's a kind of fascism, because this was indeed, in fact, how the fascist economies of the 30s were, were organized. They were organized as state management of the economy for the good of the, you know, of the, of the population or the, or the people or the nation. And what you're seeing all over the West now is you're seeing increasing debts, state debts. Money has become, um, increasingly detached from value and you're seeing the costs passed on to the taxpayers and to the middle class. And I think it would be difficult to describe that as being exactly, you know, right wing. I mean, the left's idea of the right wing is indeed um, a number of billionaires in collusion with the government mm-hmm. in order to oppress the workers, which is a certain kind of update of Marx in the Communist Manifesto. I think that there is actually even some truth in that. But the manner in which they do that is also one that involves the left in quite an important and serious degree. And I think that's true, especially in terms of neoliberalism, open borders and um, free trade. You know, you see anarchists sometimes marching, no banks, no borders, but, but the banks also want no borders. And the way in which capital flows over borders, the way in which national power is transferred into a form of global power, which is not capitalist per se, but operates a different form of almost soft totalitarianism in which leftism, conceived of as this religion of detachment of language from reality, predominates over a global capitalism in inverted commas. 
Mm. I suppose maybe <laughs> gamely and slightly naively, I want to say that the left that I grew up with, as it were, was really filled with people who were very, I want to say, motivated by a feeling of fairness and, and compassion and a desire to perhaps redistribute the good things in life um, and to ensure a kind of, uh, yeah, again, a kind of uh, a freedom and also a kind of humour. I mean, I want to say one thing that has vanished perhaps on the left is an openness to to humour, an openness to desire, an openness to love. I mean, in the 20th century, you you get all kinds of attempt, interesting attempts uh, to kind of mix up Freud and Marx, you know, thinking about sort of psychoanalytic attempts to think about politics, to try to like, uh, I don't know, preserve some of these kind of spaces of openness that are about delight and, and sex and love and joy and also about subversion. You know, the left used to be very subversive. It used to make, uh, you know, parodies of the, of the man, you know, it used to try to take down the kind of, uh, the status obsession of power and, you know, that kind of, uh, seriousness of authority. And, and I think that in a sense has, has vanished from the contemporary left. Um, and I mean, I don't know. We have, we have a difficult question about, um, the desire that people seem to have to want to be good. And this is absolutely uh, causing huge amounts of problems. I mean, lots of the so-called SJW contemporary left are motivated by the idea that they're good people, mm -hmm. you know, and that they're doing good things. They don't necessarily see that this sort of, these acts of, you know, censorship and policing and calling everybody, you know, one micro millimeter to the, to the right of them, a fascist or a Nazi or a turf or whatever is actually extremely destructive. And actually for leftists to go after people's jobs, you know, to attack, you know, the very thing like economic sustaining, like what it means to have a job, you know, to go after that. I mean, it's not a leftist strategy that I would ever recognize from, you know, the kind of people on the left, the Marxists who I was friends with in my twenties and, and so on, they would never engage in such uh, behaviour and such tactics. Um, and, you know, I want to say that there is a there is a way of being kind of motivated uh, for fairness, for re redistribution, for pleasure, for joy, for freedom, um, that may be kind of hard to see on the left at the, mm -hmm. at the moment, mm -hmm. but that, that was there and that, that is there. And, and it is still there. It's just in hiding. I mean, we, the survey data shows quite clearly that the left wing person still has on average, a lot of these desires and, and viewpoints and opinions. Left wing people are still on average, more open to free speech than right wing people on average. What's what, what, What's the problem is that the highly visible, most vocal kind of faction on the left happens to be a, a, an authoritarian faction. Mm -hmm. I think um, the question of redistribution is an interesting one because I do think that there's something important about redistribution conceived of as a, as a leftist point of view. Now, of course, the reality is as well, what redistribution means is that the state takes something and, and gives it to somebody else. And so that is a objectively statist 
policy, it can't be implemented without a state. It can be implemented by the people. Well, mm. but who are the people without the state, in a sense? Well, there are various them. wild forms of redistribution. I mean, theft is a form of redistribution. Well, indeed. And so, and so essentially, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a kind of politics of theft. And, in fact, you know, the state is indeed redistributing all the time. I mean... With quantitative easing, what it did is it redistributed mm-hmm. a lot of wealth from the middle class to the upper class and and to the to the one percent, as it were. I mean, it was quite ironic that it was doing that that Obama was doing this at the same moment as you know Occupy Wall Street was in a way being you know promoted by the left, and then you had this leftist president who was pursuing these policies. Now, of course, people will say, "Oh, well, Obama wasn't wasn't really a leftist," and this is always, in a sense, what the left says. I mean. Mm. Your claim, you know, that the left wasn't going after people's jobs. Okay, well, I mean, you know, nonetheless, the writers' union in the Soviet Union did operate, you know, very definitely in order to make sure that there were its members in certain culturally prestigious position and not other people. I think that these kinds of political tactics... um, you know, uh, in a way, actually, older than the left and the right. I mean, it's about, you know, whose faction is in charge to some extent. I think one of the most interesting ironies, actually, in terms of what the left has lost from what it somehow had. I mean, one thing that it used to have is is a suspicion of the of the media, which mm-hmm. seems it's yeah. completely vanished now. Mm-hmm. And it's <laughs> kind of taking its marching orders from the New York Times, which is, which is amazing, frankly. And the other thing which is strange, mm-hmm. even now... People talk about cultural Marxism. Is the left today is not recognizably Marxist in the way no. that it was, and I mean you can make many criticisms of Marx, to be honest. But mm-hmm. of course, at the end of the day, he still is somehow in in the Enlightenment tradition of of critical thought, and therefore is available for that mode of engagement. And the left that we have today is really something that's turned its back on that form of rationalism altogether. Mm -hmm. I don't disagree. And I I think um, one of the things I would want to preserve (coughs) from Marx is is in a sense the critique of of exchange value, the the idea, you know, his diagnosis in a certain sense that we live in a world in which, um, you know, exchangeability is the dominant form. I mean, I think that's exactly, that's accurate. It remains accurate, you know, in terms of how we measure the relationship between things, how we, you know, the economic system, also how we treat each other as exchangeable. And and I'm profoundly opposed to uh, this kind of quantitative image of the world, the idea that we live in a world where there is nothing sacred or special, that people are not unique, that people are, um, you know, somehow replaceable. You know, I, in a sense, my, my leftism is maybe infused with a certain kind of uh, theological sacred quality <laughs> about um, a, a strange combination of the uniqueness of people, like their, their voice, their being, their very existence. You know, in a sense, we all have like existence privilege by virtue of not being dead. You know, and I think that's one of the reasons why we should all talk to each other, you know, um, and, and not sort of shut ourselves off. And then, you know, so I, I, I'm interested in like a qualitative 
world, you know, a world that values precisely the things that Marx does talk about in the German ideology about, you know, what it might mean to be polyvalent, which is to say free to express all of our different qualities and aspects and not be funneled into a particular role as, you know, in this particular job or more likely today as someone who, who just does a series of kind of uh, random, you know, service industry jobs or something like this in which people do not get to express you know, their full range of their, their uniqueness in a certain way. And, and Marx is not against the individual, you know, despite, uh, you know, the, despite actually existing communism, despite kind of the stereotypes about communism, Marx is in favour of the social individual. Like, we do not know what it is yet to be an individual. Capitalism thinks it's an individualism. It's not. It creates, uh, it proliferates sameness, like homogeneity, exchangeability. You know, the, the ideology of, if not the right, at least the dominant era, is is one of individualism. But but it's not. That's the ideology. Mm. You know, we're not fully individual. We don't yet know who we are because we're not free to to be who we are. Well, you know, I mean, one could actually criticise the the ideology of individualism too. I mean, there's a way in which collectivism is a form of individualism. I mean, the individual is also somehow actually something that belongs to even a kind of exchangeability or quantitative exchangeability because you have the form of the individual. And that's a form that's, in fact, created at a certain point in history. I mean, it's like Guénon says, you know, man in a traditional society would never dream of, let's say, claiming an idea as his own original invention because mm. if he was to do so, it would immediately deprive it of all authority mm. because if an idea is true, it's actually there eternally and... Uh, there for all time. I think that, you know, the sacred dimension actually is interesting to consider in terms of the left and the right, because there's also a left sacred and a right sacred. Mm -hmm. And the relationship of the left sacred and the right sacred to the political left and, and right is curious. The sacred form of it for those um, who haven't read as much Bataille as, <laughs> as me lately is the idea of a Cadaver, for example, belongs to the to the left sacred, and and a relic belongs to the right sacred. And so there's a process of purification that happens mm. with respect to matter, which in effect sacralizes certain objects so that they can then be used in in ritual contexts. Today, of course, we have this discourse of toxicity, and also actually a kind of uh, taboo strangely and ironically placed on the idea of purification so it's as if you know from a kind of left sacred perspective that we would just have all of these kinds of cadavers sort of lying around you know and never become relics like in the 70s yeah like in the 70s before, before. i mean i want to say you know marx's idea of the social individual i mean it's also you know the polyvalence is is is, is also on the side of the the collective what it means to have a shared social and human being and and you know this obviously raises questions about what we mean by humanity and the, you know the question of universality you know is that compatible with the idea of the uniqueness of individuals um you know this is a this is a huge kind of question um about how we conceive almost like a political philosophical anthropology like what is the the subject of politics exactly mm. you know man is a political animal fine um but you know who is who or what is the the material of politics? You know, is it every adult? 
Is it, you know, any everyone who can vote? Is it everyone who, you know, lives in the polis? Is it everyone, you know, what about the countryside? You know, who who in a sense like uh, uh, belongs to the category of the, the political? And mm-hmm. like, obviously Marxism struggles with this question, um, you know, in defining like the proletariat. Oh, it's no longer the proletariat. It's the multitude, you know, in Hart and Negri. Or it's, you know, some other idea of a collective political subject. You know, and perhaps we're only united sort of uh, negatively in a certain way. I mean, by things like the fact that we're all alive at this point. We're not yet um, cadavers. <laughs> I think the, um, cadavers? <laughs> I think one thing that you can say about the left and also about Marxism at a certain time is that it represents a kind of imperialism of the political. The left is mm-hmm. politicized. It's, it, it's, it's constantly politicized and it's politicizing. It believes in politicization. It believes in activism. It's committed to that. It promotes that as a goal. Now, I would say there's another point of view, which is the people who actually don't really want to have anything to do with politics, you know, and and why should they, actually? I mean, there are other things, Mm -hmm. you know. I mean, here we are in the cosmos, you know, stars above us, you know, live your life. Why not? But the left says no, actually. Like, they, there's, there's, you know, there's a kind of form in which it is driving towards a total politicization of society so that everybody has to sort of care about politics all the time. And if you don't, you know, it has a problem with you. In the 19th century, Marxism and socialism became these vectors, actually, ironically and interestingly, for even spreading and rendering acceptable capitalism for the working class. Socialism became whose phrase was this, the, the, the capitalism of the poor, and it was also a way in which the poor, who mm-hmm. were now workers, mm-hmm. who were deterritorialized persons, working wage labor, organized into factories, were then organized into parties by the Socialist Party, organized into armies. Mm-hmm. And that was a form of, mm-hmm. of, of imperialism working itself then and again through, through a leftist form of politics. That's very well put. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I kind of think, I think with a lot of other people too, that increasingly Max Weber is more important than Karl Marx. Because in, in, in my reading, this problem that you just articulated, Daniel, is precisely the left and anti-capitalism itself becoming kind of subjugated to the much larger dynamics of, of modern capitalism itself. So the problem is not so much the exploitation by the ruling class of the working class, so much as it is a much larger kind of cultural domination of capitalism itself over how we value things and how we, you know, how, how we, how, how we value and how we behave. So it's this, you know, it's this increasing march of instrumental rationality as the only conceivable rationality, the only type of values that we're even able to feel anymore are essentially instrumental. And this has had the ironic effect of making the working classes some of the most rapidly capitalistic and instrument, in other words, instrumentally kind of motivated uh, classes around. In some sense, release from instrumental rationality and its kind of mental oppression is actually more likely to be enjoyed by people with money, people, you know, at least above kind of the lowest of the lower classes. And in some sense, what you're seeing among kind of the most the most rabid factions of the anti-capitalist left today is arguably the most vulgarly intensified 
capitalistic mindset we've ever known in some sense, because if you, if you really drill down to it, it looks a lot to me like all of the moralism, all of the signaling is essentially a vaguely sublimate, sublimated kind of economic desperation. It's this kind of all that matters is, is me and my group getting some minimum amount of resources that we're really terrified of, of losing altogether. And we will say, we will combine words in any way that is necessary for us to, to get the resources that we feel are, are increasingly escaping our reach. And, you know, one has to have a lot of sympathy because a lot of these people are in fact, um, vulnerable are in fact, you know, increasingly threatened by things like automation and AI. So in some, in some sense, I think the economic desperation is, is real. Um, and, and, and significant and, and should be, should be taken seriously and one should have sympathy. But the, yeah, this is why I think Weber is kind of in some, in some sense more important than Marx right now, because he was kind of the one who m- most effectively kind of saw all this coming, that we would be increasingly kind of locked into this mm-hmm. iron cage from which, you know, it was, it was completely unclear then as now how one would be able, how, how we would ever be able to escape from this kind of increasing iron cage of, just sheer instrumental rationality is the only way we're even able to think about ourselves and, and the world around us. And that's so I feel like that's actually the most prescient kind of diagnosis of the problem, uh, much more so than any kind of like Marxist story. I mean, I share, I share your point of view actually. And I think, you know, in a way, I mean, I share also your, your suspicion of capitalism actually. I mean, I think that whatever we have now, it's hard to say what it is, but mm-hmm. I mean, one of, my problems with the left is I think the left is basically the tool of international capital, mm. actually. And I think that also if you look at the structure of the left, how it's organized from a political science point of view, and this is unbelievably obvious today to to a greater extent than ever before, but the left is organized as a party of the upper middle class, fundamentally, um, you know, mobilizing soldiers um, amongst the you know poorer parts of society in order to pursue their mm-hmm. own objectives on the metropolitan political level and you look around the left today and you know you can see for example in the relation that the democratic party has to wall street in the relation that universities in america which have become unbelievably exploitative you know engines mm-hmm. Mm-hmm of capital generation to the extent where you can say, you know, that Harvard University now is really like a kind of a hedge fund with this sort of college attached, actually. You know, this is not organic popular sovereignty. This is actually something which is being managed and controlled by the global elite in order to in order to pursue its own objectives. And I, I think that people's desire to be to be good is 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 a great thing and, and you know many people are are compassionate and the way in which their compassion is twisted mm-hmm. by the news media and by people who are actually very sociopathic and they don't have any compassion themselves mm-hmm. but okay. they know how to push people's buttons yeah i think that if you look at the left now you can see a kind of coalition composed out of very, very cynical people and somewhat naive people. Mm. And I think that to detach the latter from the former would be a very valid project. I think that ultimately 
the necessity is for people of integrity and conscience to consider the world in which they live and the people that they know and to think about how they can improve their lives and those people's lives. And that's the basis for a much more organic form of politics. I think this gravitation to the ideological and the technical and also the instrumental, this is a form of slavery in its own right. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe. And it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.